0: you would, open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4 as we pick up again on this uh, study of this tremendous, uh, it's a short but uh, packed uh, packed book. In fact, we will be spending uh, the next three weeks uh, looking at Jonah 4 from different aspects. We'll kind of get started this morning, get touch on it, but we'll look uh, more in depth in, in different themes because it speaks to us uh, both personally in terms of, of our own spirituality, it speaks to us of uh, of uh, what, uh, what makes us tick and also establishes for us uh, God's heart and God's priorities uh, for, uh, that, that ought to be embraced by us as well. Uh, this summer we will be, so after uh, Memorial Day, beginning in June, uh, when, uh, we'll be focusing on Psalms, uh, which is a pattern, but uh, we're titling it uh, The Language of Prayer. As we uh, have a strong desire and to, to grow in that aspect of our, not only our personal, but our, our corporate life, uh, to become a, a church uh, that is truly really, uh, called a house of prayer for all nations, that we would be a people that uh, prayer is our, our first response, true communing prayer with the Lord uh, in all its beautiful in, in many different ways and expressions. And that part of that, the, the part of being a house of prayer for all nations, which sometimes can be confusing, but uh, it's actually what Jesus says, means that we would move beyond the sick list. While it's important to pray for people who are, are who are uh, struggling with with different illnesses and trials, uh, but a house of prayer for all nations prays for all the nations, prays for people, uh, for uh, both for unbelievers to come to faith, for believers that are experiencing persecution. It praises God for all His good. That's that's our desire. So this summer we hope, as we walk through various psalms, at least when Camper and I are, are preaching, um, we will be fortified in uh, language and seeing just how how uh, wonderful it is to be a people who pray. But all of God's words is important, and it shapes us not just in what we know, uh, but how we are to live. And so this morning we look at Jonah chapter 4. and We pray that the Lord would speak to us through that. Jonah chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll continue through the end of the chapter in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth there for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The word of our God. Our Father, as we come to this passage, we pray that you would speak to us. Open not just our ears to hear, but our hearts to receive, and our eyes to see. Our hearts to receive your truth as your Holy Spirit speaks it to us through this word. And eyes to see not just the world in this case, but our own lives, our own attitudes, our own hearts. Lord, search us and see if there is any way of iniquity. Search us to see if we are wandering and somehow unaware search us and restore us, renew us in your grace and the joy of our salvation, that we may serve you not only with our actions but with our whole hearts and whole lives. Lord, to you be all glory is our prayer. Work in us and begin in us. This we pray in Christ our Redeemer King. Amen. Once upon a time, long, long ago, I served as a chaplain in the Houston Astros organization. It was a rough job. I was to go to the ballpark several times a week, hang out, sometimes take batting practice, other times hang out with the outfielders shagging flies in the outfield, uh, play cards in the locker room, sit in the dugout during games if I felt like it. You know, but somebody has to do that kind of work. Um, And I was saying, Lord, here I am, send me. Um, And the team that I served was their AA franchise in Jackson, Mississippi, part of the the Texas league. And one of the things that I learned uh, there is that it's a AA minor league baseball, which is is a high level. There's only one other level between them and the major leagues. It's uh, a fascinating time because it's the highest level that many of these guys will ever reach. And so you have young men, most of whom are probably in the early 20s. And when I was doing it, I was 28 and 29. And so they were like younger brothers for me that I was able to engage. Uh, But they were at a precipice in their life. They were either going to experience in a relative short time, a lifetime of dreams and become sudden millionaires, or their lifetime of dreams and labors were gonna come dashing down and they were gonna go have to find a real job like the rest of us. And so that made opportunities to talk uh, about where people were and their values in and, and, and their lives uh, uh, a, uh, a little easier because they all recognized they were at this point. And very few were going to have their dreams achieved, even at the AA level with only one level uh, above them before they make the major leagues. Statistically speaking, I learned at least at that point in time is that on any given night... Only two guys on any roster would ever even set foot in the major leagues, would ever even take a bat or throw a pitch in the major leagues. So 25 guys in the AA, 25 guys in AAA, and of any given night, only two of them would ever be called up and to experience their dream. The competition was so great and so high at the next level uh, that they just, you just think that you know most, half, a number of them would go, but very few of them do. But the team that I had to serve, at least the first year, had a a number of very talented players, and several of them ended up in in the major leagues. And even in August, late August of that first year that I was serving, a few of them received the call to go up to the show. And and, you know, one of the things that was really not surprising, but it is sort of in retrospect as I I look at this passage, is is that, you know, not one of those guys who got the call to go and join the Astros in, in August of that season called and complained, called and were angry about achieving the apex of success in their chosen profession, of achieving everything that they would dream and and actually had been praying for for a long time. Not one of them was angry about it. Not one of them was frustrated or disappointed. Some of them were a little nervous. Some of them were frightened, understandably so. But not one of them was angry. I mean, absolutely, how ridiculous would that be to experience everything that you ever worked for and everything that you've ever wanted and then be angry about it? And yet that 's exactly what we see Jonah doing here in this particular passage it's baffling it's, it's it's surprising we we just we just it's so unexpected that Jonah, who was a prophet who had served the Lord and prophesied before, who was called. we knew he had some issues in chapter one that he you know he didn 't like the people that he was called to go to, uh, but he had this spiritual epiphany and now he was renewed in his service to the Lord, and the Lord sent him back, and he goes on the mission field. He preached a message, not a good one, but he preached a message to the people, and now the people responded in ways that every evangelist, every revivalist, every prophet would would love to see happen. The people repented, and they responded, and they said, let's turn from our evil ways, and, and they sought a God that they really didn't know in hopes that that God would have mercy on them. In other words, the whole culture, at least for a time, was being transformed by the message of the glory of God and the demonstration of the power of God. And Jonah should have been thrilled. What we should read in Jonah chapter 4 is, and Jonah was standing in amazement and awe that a message that he preached, especially a lousy message that he preached, would have this kind of effect on people that they would acknowledge their own sin and they would say, let's seek the Lord and let's hope to have the Lord's mercy. That's what Jonah 4 should say. That's what we expected to say. Instead, what we see is Jonah sulking under a plant, angry with God, angry enough and saying, You know what, Lord, just kill me. I knew that you were a kind God. I knew that you were a compassionate God. I knew that you would have mercy on people who don't deserve mercy. And now that you had, it's better for me to die. It is just. So head scratching. In fact, it is so head scratching that if a lot of times when the story of Jonah is told, it doesn't include chapter four at all. In fact, I would suggest that you go to uh, almost any children's Bible uh, story Bible, and Jonah chapter three is where it ends. They don't know what to do with Jonah chapter four. It doesn't fit in the narrative. We recognize the normal narrative and and chapters one through three. You know, Jonah was a prophet, but you know he had his own sin. He needed some things worked out. The Lord. Uh, reached him in a dramatic way, he had a change of heart, and then he recommitted himself. He was renewed in relationship with God, recommitted himself to mission, he went on mission, and then bore fruit. Boom! Story's over, right? That's the way the story's supposed to go. That's the way that we often teach it. And yet, because it is so confusing, it is so baffling, and I think perhaps because it is so frightening to us, it is often left out. Now, those story bibles that leave it out it's not necessarily wrong for them to leave it out it's not like they're changing the facts of things everything through jonah one through three is also legitimate it's also all true and god did that and he used jonah in just the ways that it's described and so it's not wrong for them to leave that out but i think it is i think the omission is unfortunate It's unfortunate because we miss out on a treasure of truth if we don't look to see Jonah in Jonah chapter four. From the very beginning, I've been suggesting to you that we need to look at Jonah through the lens of seeing ourselves in Jonah. That Jonah represents us, our own attitudes, our our own life, our own relationship with God and our relationship with the world. And and while it is true in every aspect of the story, I think it's most vividly true and most uncomfortably true as we see Jonah here in Jonah chapter 4. If we eliminate Jonah chapter 4, we miss out on the opportunity, the necessity of some very important messages, very important lessons that we need to understand in order to understand ourselves and our relationship with God and our place in this world. And I guess of all the lessons I would say, first and foremost, we we need to understand this, is any one of us can fall into old patterns of self-centeredness and sin. And it's important that we know that. Not just acknowledge, yeah, that's probably true, but we know that. We know that not about people in general, that we know that about ourselves in particular. Any one of us can, and all of us do, in some degree or another, fall into old patterns of self-centeredness and sin. Now many Christians and non-Christians share a common misconception. It's not uncommon to hear non-Christians saying, you Christians who you know think you're so sure you're going to heaven, you ought to be a much better people than you are. And it's an indictment we don't like. It's an indictment that is uncomfortable. Sometimes it's unfair, but often it has at least a kernel of truth, and more often than not, uh, more than a kernel of truth. The expectation is that if we know God and you know we're destined for heaven, as we sing and as we hope, as we expect, that we would seem to be better people. Christians on the other hand, many Christians, maybe perhaps uh, many evangelical Christians, uh, people within our tribe uh, wouldn't phrase it quite the same way, but many Christians would acknowledge, look we're not perfect. We know that we're not perfect and so that's our answer to the people who would say that Christians ought to be better people than we are. But there's a subtle voice that goes within us, says, look I'm not perfect. But as a child of God, you know, I'll mess up, but I'm not going to fall far. I'm not going to bring shame. I'm not going to, you know, uh, uh, bring uh, disre- disrepute upon uh, the Lord or upon the church. Because we just have this idea that because God has us and because we belong to him and because he's promised to never let go, never to forsake us, that, you know, we can't wander too far. It's almost like, you know, you have your, Wandering two-year-old, but on a leash. You know, the leash might give some, but sooner or later you yank back. But then we see examples like Jonah. That their character seems almost totally inconsistent with godliness. And we're not sure what to do with it. With the two attitudes, the, the unbeliever who says, you Christians ought to be better than you ought to be, and the, and the Christian who says, look, I, I'm not perfect, but you know, because I'm a child of God, I, I'm not going to really, really mess up too badly, is that both of them believe that the essence of Christianity is in our performance, in being a better person than other people are. And we need to understand this, that while it is true that in time... Those who are followers of Christ, those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, may become better than the average person. That is the effect of the faith and the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not the essence of the faith. The essence of the faith is that we are a messed up people just like everybody else around us. But God, who is abounding in love and who is gracious, has called messed up people to himself, has redeemed us, paying the penalty that we deserve, and has poured his grace out upon us, and his grace is at work within us and is bringing transformation in those who belong to him. The theological word of that is sanctification. It's the process where we, we die to our old ways and to our old patterns and to our self-centeredness and then we grow in the righteousness and, and the holiness uh, of Christ. We become more and more like Christ over time. And that is a process that God has begun. We are God's workmanship. The scripture says that we are his poema is, the, is the, the Greek word meaning poems, works of art. Every one of you is a work of God's art. His hand is shaping you in some way. but we are in process. And the essence of our faith is not in our goodness, but in the grace of our God. And when we forget that, we are at most vulnerable, most at risk to returning to our self-centeredness and to our uh, sin, the sin patterns that we had experienced before. Essential difference, or maybe the primary difference, uh, between the Christian who is now in Christ and the one who has yet to receive Christ is not the distinction of being a better person, uh, but that, that it is that God who's at work. And part of the way that God's work is he gives the one who is in Christ, the one who has the assurance of God's love, regardless of what we see when we look in the mirror, to be able to admit our weaknesses. In fact, in one sense, it's a precondition to be able to experience the grace in the first place. We need to be able to say to God, look, I know that I am messed up. I know kind of the, the old uh, paraphrase of W.C. Fields who once said uh, that he would never, never join a club, or maybe I guess it was Groucho Marx said, uh, I'll never join a club that would have me as a member. That should be the mantra for the church. The church has been said as the only organization, the only institution in the world that as a prerequisite for membership, you need to admit to those who are letting you in that you shouldn't be allowed in. You have to admit and recognize that we are weak, that we are broken, that we know that we have sinned, that we are not what we ought to be, that we have alienated ourselves from others and we have offended God. We have to have that understanding about ourselves in order to be admitted in the first place because it's only when we have that understanding of our brokenness, our weakness, our frailty, that we are now open to receiving grace. It's the confession of our sin. It is also now the recognition of God's provision of Christ. Confession, repentance, Faith, repentance of faith, repentance of faith, they are the two wings by which we fly toward heaven. And from the very beginning, the difference is that it's not about saying, today I'm committing myself to being a better person and I will follow in all of God's ways. That's not the essence, that's not the foundation, that's the fruit. The essence is, today I recognize that I am so messed up that I should not be trusted to run my own life. Because based on my track record and based on my attitudes, I have proven myself incapable of running my own life. And my life is going nowhere and there is no destiny for me unless someone intervenes. Someone greater, someone wise, someone who is capable of making up for my mess and that provision is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him kind of hinted towards as Jonah as a prophet of God, recognized that God would one day send his Messiah. He himself in his time in the, uh, in the belly of the, of the great fish was uh, pointed to by Jesus himself as, as a sign of the one that would come. There's just much of Christ that is present here, and as Jonah was looking forward to that promise of Messiah, the one who would redeem, we now look back on the one who came was born, who lived, and then who died on the cross only to rise again three days later. God's provision to redeem us, the one who is God in the flesh. The essence of our faith is not rooted in our performance. It is rooted in God's graciousness. And when we lose sight of that, we become very vulnerable and become very self-trusting. You see, the scripture tells us this, is that when we admit our weaknesses and we receive the Spirit of God, it's, it's phrased this way, the Apostle Paul writes that we receive an imperishable seed. It's like the, the seed of the, the gospel, the, the seed uh, of, of the Lord's work is planted in our hearts uh, in order to bear fruit and to, to bring changes. But we need to recognize that when a seed is planted... Not everything changes immediately. Our status changes. We are now no longer alienated from God. We are adopted children. We are no longer um, wayward, but we are part of the way. We are, we belong to the way. But I mean, if you think about your own conversion experience, I would suspect that for most of you, the morning after you received Christ. Not a whole lot changed, at least in uh, an experiential sense. If you were married, you were still married. If you were single, you were probably still single. If you were boring, you were probably still boring. If you were poor, you were still poor. If you were wealthy, you probably still held your wealth. The things that we measure by, most of those things didn't change the moment that the seed was planted, although everything did change. Because you were no longer your own. You now had the power of God who was at work within you. You now have the ability to say no to sin because it no longer owned you. So there are very significant things that change in a spiritual plane, but in, a, in our normal plane, things didn't really seem to to change all that much. But change comes over time because that seed, the imperishable seed that comes by faith, which we receive only when we recognize that we are sinners who are saved only by grace, only when we recognize our weakness and our brokenness, it begins to bear fruit. It begins to change and to bring godly fruit while driving out the bad fruit. A number of years ago, a friend of mine who had a landscape business, he took a look at my lawn and suggested I need to plant plugs of something called Zoya grass. I hadn't heard of Zoya grass. I can't tell you exactly what Zoya grass looks like or is even today. But I can tell you what he promised. He said that if you put Zoya grass in and plugs of Zoya grass throughout your yard in three to four years, the grass will spread and it'll kill all of the weeds. Now, full disclosure, I just sold the house and moved. But that's, um, and so, wasn't the reason for it. But, you know, the illustration still stands. Now, had I planted the zoya grass, the day that I planted the grass, it it didn't change my yard immediately. Over a time, three to four years process, that grass would begin to spread out. And it would drive out all the things that I didn't want, and it would have a, a nice... A green, luscious yard in its place, because the day that you planted those, I would have planted those plugs, all of the weeds were under a death sentence, and that type of grass apparently is proven over and over and over again to to kill those weeds and to uh, to take over uh, to take over the yard and make it into a yard that uh, that you wanted to. Well, the same thing is true spiritually: is when we admit our weakness, the spirit is implanted, and the condemning power of sin is now under a death sentence. It's the condemning power is gone immediately. But the influential power of sin, it still remains, but it will be driven out. But another thing that we need to understand, not only the I mean that promise is something that we, we need to cling to, but we need to know this that just as a mortally wounded animal is dangerous and likely to attack, so is the sin in our life that knows if it's under a death sentence. And when we're not aware, we're caught unaware. We're not, uh, not aware of our own attitudes, our own heart, and even that we're vulnerable and susceptible to this because somehow we think that because of the change and because of the promise that now we are no longer vulnerable to self-centeredness. That's when we are most ripe for being caught by surprise. And frankly, that's what we see in Jonah here. See Jonah here makes no sense to the person who thinks, ah, see the Christian life is this, I recognize I once was lost, but now I'm flying. I was blind, but now I see. And since now I see, and now I don't know where I'm going, it's gonna be smooth sailing, maybe a few bumps along the way, but it's gonna be a straight line. And that, therefore we won't fall more, or by virtue of talking about the things of God that makes me a, a better person, a better husband, or better father. And the Lord says that's not the way it works. But if we have that mindset, Jonah doesn't make any sense and we don't know what to do with him. But if we understand, look, that every one of us still has sin that impacts us and we still have our old thought patterns, we have values that need to continually be brought into conformity with the way of God. We have people that are around us that we need to relate to and it's not everybody is easy. we would be vulnerable. In Jonah chapter 4, we see a man who's demonstrating his old attitudes and behaviors. This on the heels of a a period of personal and spiritual enlightenment and then unprecedented success in ministry or in compassion and and, and, in achieving what he wanted. He is an example to us, a reminder to us that any one of us can fall back to our own patterns, that there are things, even if we're not conscious of them, that we value more than we value God and His grace and His kingdom. And we are particularly susceptible because we often fail to recognize our own fickleness and our own sinfulness. So, prophet Jeremiah tells uh, tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. It says, who can understand it? In other words, our hearts constantly are lying to us, and they lie to us so, fr- lie, uh, so frequently that we can't compensate for it. We can't make, it's not just, you know, we know it's lying about this. Sometimes the heart tells us through, sometimes it doesn't. We don't know necessarily when the heart, if we are basing our lives and our direction and our values on our feelings and instincts, then we have a compass that is unreliable. And yet that's the reality for every one of us. And when this happens, we, we tend to justify or rationalize our con- holding on to these old patterns, old thought patterns and, and values. It's been said that just as a drunk, will not admit his drunkenness while he's still at the bar. We are not very likely to admit that our sin is infecting and affecting us while we are not confessing it. And not only do we deny the impact of sin in our own lives, or we ignore the impact of it in our own lives, we we tend to... um, minimize the depth of the sin and and even those who are affected by it. I I can't imagine that Jonah said in Jonah chapter 1, you know what? I think today I'm going to spit in the face of my creator and maker and do everything that I can to avoid living in accordance with his way. Whether he had some sense of that, you know, who who knows. But most likely I suspect that Jonah thought, if Assyria is forgiven, Israel is doomed. Just look at the news. And I'm not going to have any part of that. I'm not going to take a message that might let God kind of forgive them to them and then have them just go back to their old ways and then wipe out my people. And so, if I die, I'm dying for country and kinsmen. True cultural warrior. More concerned about his nationalism and more concerned about his culture war than he was about the Great Commission and about God. But in so doing, even if he, he was thought that what he was doing is noble, he was doing it for the sake of of his country and his people. He, what he was doing was he was denying. God and out of line with his own calling. And so I look at this passage and I have to, all week, it's been an uncomfortable week because I have to ask myself the same thing that I ask you, which is this is, so is there anything you're rationalizing? So anything that, you know, according to your values, which would be good, and you can find a number of people who say, well, you know, I agree with you 100%, that will allow you to rationalize ignoring God, therefore doing opposite of what God wants you to do, because this is what we see Jonah doing throughout this book. And, And we see the evidence that it was still in him, even when he obeyed, because he immediately returns to it when he sees the grace of God poured out upon other people. We need to recognize that that's what happens. Every one of us is susceptible to this. I appreciated Jonathan Edwards and uh, some of his writings from long ago because he recognized this within himself. He, he committed himself to making, taking every opportunity uh, when he saw the sin of other people to recognize his own sinfulness. Listen to what he said because this is part of the antidote to um, th- this problem of being susceptible to our old patterns. Resolved to act in all respects, both in speaking and doing, as if nobody had ever been as sinful as I am. And when I encounter sin in others, I will feel, at least in my own mind and heart, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same weaknesses or failings as others. I will use the knowledge of their failings to promote nothing but humility, even shame in myself. I will use awareness of their sinfulness and weakness only as an occasion to confess my own sins and misery to God. Now, the background of that is he understands something that is important for us to remind ourselves, is that... There's he's he's make, he's built on a foundation of understanding a distinction between the and the creator and the and the creature. And what he writes elsewhere is this: is that he understands that his sin is so great because his sin, whatever it is, no matter how minimal we might consider it, but all sin is against God. And so, if somebody sins against him, I mean, truly sins against him, offends him, or, or really hurts him in some way, that's bad. But he's not the one who's able to judge that. All he knows is that any sin that he has is even worse than that sin against him because all of his sin is against God. And that was the orientation that he wanted and that brought humility. Now, he was able to do this also because he saw the other side of that coin is that with with repentance and confession of sin is also a reminder of God's incredible love that he lavishes out upon his people and and the forgiveness and the restoration. So it's not somebody who was going to live his life as a worm, but it's somebody who was using a discipline to be humble and to aware of their own vulnerabilities. Because every one of them, every one of us is susceptible to it. The question that we need to finish with is this is so, what are we supposed to do when we recognize that we are either tempted or even we have slidden into our, our old habits and mindset? Let me give you three things. First, I would encourage you to examine your heart regularly and frequently. See, it's interesting that God comes to Jonah here in chapter four and he asks him some questions. He asks him about his, his motives. First, why are you angry? Do you have a right to be angry? See, God's not inquiring because God doesn't know. God is asking Jonah these questions because he wants Jonah to know his own heart and his own mind, his own orientation. We see the Lord doing that in the garden as well, right after our first parents' sin. Where are you? Well, God already knew where they were, but we wanted them to say, "Ah, look, the same as a a mother of of a toddler. What did you just do? Mom already knows what you just did. Mom wants to make sure that you know what you just did. And and God does that with us all the time. And these are the kinds of questions that he asks and that we ought to be asking ourselves. Why are you angry or why are you frustrated? Why are you downcast? Why are you brokenhearted? Why are you feeling what you are feeling? And that's a question that we to be asking ourselves on a regular basis. And what God is doing here with Jonah is he's trying to get Jonah to look at the idols in his own life, and he's essentially saying the question behind the question is, what is it you're really living for? What is it that you really want? What are you really after? And the implicit message in all of this is that he's saying to Jonah that don't you see that when you are angry, it's not really so much what people have done to you, but that They are keeping you from a goal that is more important to you than I am. And the Lord says that to all of us. James brings it up. The reason that we quarrel and grumble and fight and kill is because we want something and we don't get it. And we want that more than we want godliness. And and so the Lord says, ask these questions that we ought to ask ourselves so that we are able to examine our own lives. See, if somebody comes to me one day and says, yeah, food, is, food no longer tastes good, I don't automatically assume that all of the taste has run out of food. I assume there's something wrong with the person. Now it would say, well, you have COVID or something else that has taken your tastes away. And the same is true spiritually. If the Christian life is a drag, if prayer is a chore and worship is a bore and Studying is tedious. The problem is not in talking to God and encountering God in worship or hearing God speak through his word. There's something that is wrong in us. It's an indication that we have or we are moving back into our old patterns. Slide into our old patterns always begins in the heart. So we need to examine our hearts. We're going to talk more about that next week.
1: The second thing is that we
0: we need to learn to boast in our weakness. Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, 12.9, the Lord said to me that my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And the apostle's response to that is this, Therefore, I will boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. In other words, it's when we are aware of our weaknesses that we allow God to be at work. God does what he's going to do, but God calls us to yield to him, to allow him to be at work in us and therefore through us. But it's only when we admit our weaknesses that God ordinarily will then be at work within us. So we need to learn to not only recognize, but to even boast in our weakness because when we boast in our weakness, when we are aware and we, we, we are clear about those, then we see, we're, when we, what we speak about is not look what I've done, but look what God is doing in me and through me. It's only when we become weak that we see that the, the Lord is strong. And I think we see that in in Jonah here, but not in the story, but in in the context of story. I I believe that Jonah became very aware of his behavior, the the comical, sad comical nature of it, and began boasting in his weakness. And I believe that, that he must have, because otherwise we wouldn't have this book in the first place. There are some people who who believe that the book of Jonah is a myth. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, uh, um, you know, who would ever write a myth where the hero ended up looking like such a stupid jerk? And and what I would suggest to you is what happened is these things are all true of Jonah, but at some point Jonah, the Lord brought Jonah back to his senses. We see Jonah revered in, in modern day, Uh, Mosul, Um, there's a temple, was raided a few years ago, but there's, uh, you know, so he's revered by Christians, by Jews, by Muslims. This is not the effect of somebody who came into town one day, preached a message, people were inspired, and then went away. There must have been a change, and my suspicion is that when Jonah kind of If there was a Jonah 5, we would find that Jonah, yeah, that really was stupid. And then basically went on a book tour and said, let me tell you how stupid I used to be. You think you're bad? Let me tell you how bad that I used to be. Because frankly, in this story, there's not one redeeming characteristic of Jonah, and nobody in ancient literature or, you know, they didn't write this way. And so it's most likely that Jonah, by the fact that he wrote this and the story was shared had come to his senses and started boasting in his weaknesses so that the glory of God's grace would shine forth. That people recognizing their own tendency to be like him, boasting in their own weakness, would experience the abounding love of God. The final thing I would suggest to you is this, is that we need to then abide in God's abounding love and grace. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, I am in him. And he it, it, it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And one of the things that we need to recognize is abiding is not the default mode of our hearts. It's an intentional commitment to be plugged in, in line with, continually powered by and renewed by the grace of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that if you think that you plug me in like you do your iPad and you know get the battery going and then you unplug so that you can go, uh, you know the battery's going to run out and ultimately you're never going to be able to do anything. It's only when you're plugged in. are you going to work only when we're plugged in in grace? are we going to uh, are we going to experience, the continued renewal and power of God. We see this also in the scriptures because it's the exact same dynamic that was taking place in in, in, in in the experience that Peter had when he saw Jesus walking in the water and said, Lord, can I come out and play? And Jesus said, come on out. And he came out and he's looking around and he's just amazed. We don't know for how long. And then the wind, waves got a little bit bigger. He took his eye off of the Lord, looked at his circumstances, realized, I can't do this, and then sunk. Because see, abiding is not something that just happens when we're not conscious of it. The Lord has us, but the power comes when we are plugged in. And he's designed for us to live our lives plugged into him by availing ourselves of what he calls the, the means of grace, where we're constantly feeding and being renewed in grace, that we're in the word and hearing God speak to us. And It doesn't mean that every time you read a Bible verse that all of a sudden you're going to have this epiphany. The word is not like Popeye spinach. Take a dose and now muscular. A lot of times it's just more like the diet over a course of time. It will strengthen you if you have a healthy diet over time. Conversing with God, prayer, communing with God. Gathering for worship and particularly partaking in the sacraments that we're told there's a power, the means of grace. Fellowship with other believers, not just because of the meals, but having the relationships with other people that will speak into your life. They will encourage you when you need encouragement, and they'll knock you down a peg when you think that you're better than than you are. But they'll do it in love. Those are the means that God has appointed by which we remain abided in Christ. And he says, if you abide in me. And so the the, the the antidote to moving back to our old ways is to continue to abide in Christ. And so we need to just see ourselves in Jonah. And we don't need to be afraid to do so. I think Jonah 4 is the, is the most uncomfortable but the most vivid picture of, of our nature, which is so fickle, but we don't necessarily recognize it. We all have our own agendas and the Lord is constantly calling us back to his agenda. And for those that want to grow in his grace and to live according to his agenda, we need to be aware of our frailty, we need to examine our hearts, we need to boast in our weaknesses, and we need to continue to be plugged into the Lord. And we do so because we recognize as he has promised that if we seek him, he will draw near. If we humble ourselves before him, he will raise us up. If we become weak in our own eyes, he will become powerful in us and through us. If we want to be used, we become usable. And the Lord is always faithful to his promise. Father, we give thanks to you this day and pray that you would speak to us through this word. Uncomfortable for some of us is the more uh, we are into our own agendas, the more uncomfortable we may be. But help us to recognize that this message, even though it may be confrontational, is an intervention that we might experience your love and your grace in greater and deeper ways. Lord, renew our minds, our hearts, our lives, that you would be pleased and that those around us would be blessed. This we pray in the incomparable name of Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen.